So we're in Haggai chapter 2 today, verses 10 through 23. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever set your heart on receiving something? I mean, just, just really kind of set your heart on it, be it a Christmas gift, be it a friendship, be it a job, only to find that once you receive this thing, some hours, months, weeks, days later, you begin to think, this isn't so great anymore. This isn't so great anymore. Maybe you're in college and, and all you want to do is graduate and, and, and get a job so you can begin paying off that mountain of debt that you've accrued over so many years. Five years sounded like a good idea before you did the fifth one. And so you move into this and you get this job and it's, it's the job that you've always wanted and then, and then it really just turns into being a job. It's this, this mundane thing you do over and again. Or maybe as a kid you really set your heart and man, I just, life would be better Water would be more filling to me. Food would taste better. All these things would be better if I had this toy, if I had this device. You get it. Six months later, a year later, you want the upgraded version. You want the newer version. Some of us, unfortunately, that's how marriage is. So you pour your heart and desire into marrying this person. You set your affections on them. You marry them. And now this isn't satisfying anymore either. For whatever reason, we generally seem to be a people who once we receive the thing that was the object of our affection, we begin to value that thing less. I had a friend of mine that lived in Vail for a number of years and occasionally I would call him and say, hey man, how's life? He's like, you know, just staring at the old Rockies again, looking at these aspen trees. I said, that's gotta be glorious. Like that's, that's I was living in Fort Worth at the time. I was like, that's gotta be pretty amazing to see that, to look out, he's like, yeah. You know, there's snow. It's like, yeah, but like, I mean, it's the Rockies, and you're looking out there, and you know that you can go skiing, and, and in the spring and the summer, you know it's just glorious. He's like, you know, it's just like anything. You just kind of get used to it after a while, and it's not so great, and it's not so glorious anymore. Unfortunately, we find this activity of our hearts creating mundane out of the extraordinary is not just isolated to things. It's not just isolated to where we live, but we find in actuality that we unbelievably apply this same idea to salvation. Now, what we find in the book of Haggai is almost an enactment of our own spiritual lives. For near 70 years, they had been in Babylon. They were taken into captivity. And always, the echo of their heart, their heartbeat said, I want to go home. We want to reconstruct the temple. I want to go home. I want to reconstruct the temple. Finally, God moves. Cyrus utters his decree. They get to go home. They get to start building the temple. And there is fanfare galore. I mean, people are just falling all over themselves to take part and to, to join in this endeavor. Are you kidding me? We're finally back. We get to build the temple. God will once again reside in Jerusalem. He will once again reside in the temple. We'll offer true and pure sacrifices to him. And then what do we find? Haggai rolls around, and 20 years later, in what was once the heartbeat that sustained them, what was once this joy that overpowered them, now was mundane and monotony. They wanted no part in it. They found themselves doing Nothing. So Haggai steps in in the year 520. Haggai steps in on August the 29th of the year 520 BC. And he looks at their houses and he says, your houses are awesome. And they say, like, we know, we know. 
This is like 500 BC surround sound pumping through this bad boy. I know. I know. I got donkeys on both sides. It's like braying and surround sound. I know. So he says, your houses are awesome. But look at the temple. They look over and they're like, true. In comparison, my house looks better than this. True enough. And so Haggai begins to work in their heart. He says, do you recognize the disparity here? The whole reason you were called back into the land was not to build something for yourself, but to build this for God. And so what we find is that in chapter 1, their hearts are broken. They are arrested as he calls them to consider their ways. And they recognize they were pouring themselves out into satisfying self instead of serving God. And so they switch off of this deal of moving from satisfying self to serving God. But even in the midst of this pursuit, we recognize once again here in verse 10 that Haggai comes to them. And so this was August the 29th when he first speaks to them. And then here we find he is on December the 18th of the same year. So Haggai comes in and the Lord instructs him to say, ask the priests about the law. So you can imagine Haggai walks up and he sees Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the other priests gathered around, and he, he posits a question to him. And effectively, his question centers on the idea of holiness and whether or not holiness can be earned or, or bestowed upon somebody by an accidental investment, by an accidental investment. Can I, by the very, just kind of the nature and the course of the way I live my life, find myself being holy. Look at the way he asked this question there in chapter 2. He says, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with the fold of, with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or, or any kind of food really, does it become holy? Does it become holy? And so what Haggai does is he takes a page out of the Leviticus 6 and so we see the priest in there and he's got this long flowing garment and he has the, the meat offered as a sacrifice to the Lord and he's carrying it. So he's, he's pulled up a fold of his garment and he's carrying it along. He says, now picture this, this guy's walking along and all of a sudden he bumps into something. Bumps into you, he bumps into me, he bumps into something else around it. Haggai's question is, does the thing he touches become holy? priest hears it, happy probably to have somebody ask him a question, even happier to know the answer to the question, they universally respond, and they say no, no. Giving us a sense, giving us the idea that holiness cannot happen by accident. Holiness cannot even happen by busyness. Now, one of the things that you and I do in terms of our approach for holiness is we seem to hope that holiness is the outcome without the expenditure of energy, right? We seem to hope that holiness kind of takes place by accident, much like growing old. We hope that we don't die in some horrific, fiery crash or death. Like every time I fly, this is my hope. Please don't let him kill me. Please don't let her kill me. Please don't let anyone in this plane kill me. Please let us land. We've landed. Please let us taxi. We've taxied. Please let me get in the car and drive home. I'm driving home, and I drive through Dallas, and I think, I wasted all my prayer on the plane. (laughs) But we tend to hope that holiness will become this kind of side effect as if holiness is just kind of this cruise control effect. That if we just kind of keep things constant, we just keep things moving along, 
we're faithful in church attendance, we're faithful in giving, we're faithful in all these various practices that holiness just kind of happens. There's nothing really that we're engaging in doing to become holy, we're just hoping that this is the byproduct of growing old surrounded by Christians. Cruise control, pursuit of holiness. Others of us, we take this back burner approach. You know what I've learned in, in, the, in the years I've been married and attempted to cook things? I can only cook one thing at a time. One thing at a time. So I know when it gets time to plate food, one thing is gonna be hot and everything else is gonna be cold. Or one thing is gonna be hot and everything else is going to be on fire, right? And so what do we do? We take it off the front burner and we put it on the back burner and we turn that heat down. Many of us in our lives, we have taken our Christianity and the pursuit of holiness and we have placed it on the back burner. So this is what that looks like for us. We come into the midst of this, we come to salvation in Christ, and so at some point over the course of our lives, we recognize that God created everything, that humanity rebelled against God, that we too joined in with humanity, and we rebelled against God. We have personally sinned against a holy God. And so on the basis of this, someone comes along and they say, do you know that you have sinned against a holy God? And we say, oy vey, I wasn't aware of this, but now I am, our hearts are broken. We say, well, what do we do? They say, believe in faith in Jesus Christ. And we say, who is that? And they say, well, it's God's son. God sent his son to be a perfectly sinless sacrifice for you to take the atonement, the penalty, the punishment for your sins. He took it upon himself. He died. He entered into a Roman grave. And on three days later, he rose again, conquering sin and death and hell for you. And so you say, this sounds pretty great. What do I have to do? And they say, believe in faith in Jesus Christ. And so we do this. We do this. Many of us as children, we surrender our lives to Christ. And then we say, well, now that I've got that settled, I'm going to go do this over here. Now that I've got that settled, I'm going to go to school. Now that I've got that settled, I'm going to get married. Now that I've got that settled, I'm going to get a job. Now that I've got that settled, I'm going to work until I'm 65, and then I'm going to do whatever the heck I want to do. And now that I've got that settled, I don't have to worry about it until I die. The back burner approach to the pursuit of holiness. Now, most of us in this engagement of the back burner pursuit of holiness find it periodically arrested. And it becomes periodically arrested at the point of crisis. This is nothing any of us seek to engineer or seek to produce in our hearts, but this is exactly how it works. I see it over and over and over again. We've got holiness back here on the back burner. We're in a car wreck. We've got holiness over here on the back burner. Our parents die. Our spouse dies. We get sick. Our finances, let's not even begin to go there. Some seminal catastrophe takes place in our life or in the life of someone close to us. Some young person we know dies. And this crisis awakens us from having placed our holiness on the back burner. And man, we bring it up to the front. And we pour all of our attention and all of our focus on this because we recognize in that moment, God is all we've got In all the years of our life leading up to this point, we have spent very little time focused on him. And so we see our lives in the pursuit of holiness move quickly from the back burner to the forefront. But what we see in this is holiness cannot be gained or garnered accidentally. You see, these people, Haggai's preparing to tell them, even in their busyness, are missing what they're doing. 
First Peter, as we read earlier, gives us this wonderful picture of holiness and our pursuit of it. So writing to these elect exiles, as he described them in chapter 1 and verse 1, says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The way that Peter describes this, all of us, before we came to know Jesus, were kind of lost in our own world and lost in our own pursuits. And he describes these things of being our former ignorance. And so what this should be to you is good news. Good news that you are not currently ignorant. You are not currently ignorant, and you are not currently engaged in foolishness. And so he calls you to abandon these former pursuits. And he says, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Why? He says, because as he has called you is holy, says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Recognize this. Our holiness largely stems from time spent with God. So God steps into your life. He finds you in the midst of pursuing sin and self and whatever else it is, and he arrests those pursuits. He stops that pursuit. And so he says to your heart, stop pursuing that and pursue me. And the more you pursue him, not the stuff around you, the more you pursue him, spend time with him in prayer, spend time with him in his word, spend time with him getting to know his heart, the more your heart breaks to your former way of ignorance and is formed and then fashioned to be like him. So Haggai steps in and he asks these priests, can we get there by accident? And they say, no, you can't get there by accident. And so he's got their attention now, and so they're wondering, where is he going to go with this? So he steps in, and he effectively asks them, now what about being a heathen? Now what about the opposite pursuit? What about fleshliness? He says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, that being the wine, the bread, the stew, the oil, or any kind of food, any of these, does it become unclean? So same picture. Walk into a room, according to Leviticus. Walk into a room, there's a dead body, I walk over and I high-five that corpse. According to the Old Testament, and I'm unclean. So he says, okay, now that guy, he's unclean, and he walks out and he bumps into Clint, he bumps into Jonathan, he bumps into Valerie, he bumps into James. Do they become unclean? Priests look at it, survey says, absolutely. Everything they touch becomes unclean. Proving the point. Holiness, you can't get there by accident. But unholiness absolutely can happen by accident. You see, every other pursuit of holiness outside of a complete investment of who you are is a pursuit of unholiness. Why? Because we begin to take our eyes off of Christ and his holiness and having that be paramount, the most important thing in our lives, and we put something else in that place. And we're hoping, uh, almost we say this, by, the, by virtue of the way we live our lives, we're hoping that this doesn't lead us too far away from God, right? We don't be too far away from God. But in some sense, we are comfortable not pursuing him with 100% of who we are. So he comes into this and says, look, 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 look. You cannot be holy outside a direct, heartfelt pursuit of it. But everything else you hope to do in life can absolutely be a pursuit of unholiness. This can be in your relationships. 
This can be in your family. It can be in your heart personally, the way you spend your free time, the way you spend your money. So we just sit there and begin to wrestle and think through all the various ways that we spend our time, talents, and energies on those things that we are pursuing. And what does that say individually about us in our pursuit of holiness? What does it say about you? Not what does your wife think about you, not what do your friends think about you, not what do your kids, your grandkids, your grandparents think about you. But in your heart as you reflect on this, what does that say? What does that say? Do you value holiness? Are you hoping instead merely not to be that bad? See, Haggai finds these people who have given everything. They have moved their lives. They have moved to this land to build this temple. Nothing could be more visible and direct in front of them. But for 20 years, they gave up on it. Until Haggai stepped in one day and said, consider your heart before God. Their hearts were broken. They began to give themselves to constructing of the temple. But what we see in this is they gave themselves to busyness, to remedying the situation. Because look what he says. He says, can uncleanliness be spread by accident? He says, absolutely. So Haggai comes in verse 14, and he says, so is it with this people, with this nation, and with every work of their hands and what they offer here, they are all unclean. Your boss steps into your office. He says, Tom, you've been here a while, and that's about all I can say about what you've done. Jim, you've been here a while, and that's about all I can say about what you've done. Sue, you've been here a while, and that's all I can say about what you've done. You say, what do you mean? You're not giving any effort. You're not giving any energy. Your last four quarterly reviews, I see a deficiency here, I see a deficiency there, I see you didn't even show up to work for a week and a half. How did that happen? Oh, yeah, I didn't fill out the paperwork. There's no paperwork to fill out. You didn't tell anybody why we didn't fire you is beyond me. Well, I'm just real glad about that, real glad you didn't fire me, boss man. And so we, we get into the middle of this, and right, what do we say if our boss steps into the middle of this and speaks to us this way? What do we do? What's our response? Unless we're independently wealthy, we dedicate ourselves, we show up early, we stay late, we skip lunch. We, we are excelling at everything. We busy ourselves trying to secure the approval of our boss. We busy ourselves so that when he looks at us, he says, man, that must have been their identical twin idiot sister who was doing those things because, man, the good sister has shown up now, the good brother has shown up now, I hope the idiot never comes back. We give ourselves to the pursuit of these things, expending all our energies in an effort to do the right thing. But Haggai comes in and he says, look, don't miss this. You see, the danger, the temptation for us and for them is that we look at the busyness, the doing of stuff is the same thing as the pursuit of holiness. Totally different. When we pursue holiness, we pursue the heart of God. And in the midst of pursuing holiness, of time spent with God in prayer and reading his word and time spent with God reflecting on who he desires for you to be. He will 
call you in to being productive. He will call you in to working for him. But it's not the opposite way. God doesn't look at you and say, Linda, Linda, you've not been doing anything. Get busy. In the midst of getting busy, then I'm going to show you what it looks like to pursue holiness. Dale, you've not been doing anything. Get busy, and then I'll come alongside and tell you, this is how we're going to turn your busyness into holiness. God wants our hearts. And he cannot get our hearts if all we give him is our feet, our hands, and our mouths. Do you see what I'm saying? There is a temptation, I'm afraid, in the life of this church and looking at our facilities, and this is going to require mass busyness by all of us in the setup, the tear down weekly. Or we just look at this building that's going to come up or come down and then come back up around us. That we look at these things and we recognize these things as being exactly what God wants from all of us corporately. If we excellently set up week in and week out, tear down week in and, and week out. If we remodel and, and we build this thing up to be amazing, but in the midst of this, we have set our hearts to the side to pursue busyness, we've missed it. We've not done a single thing that's glorifying and honoring to God. In the midst of our remodel effort, this is what keeps me up at night. This is what terrifies me. That we, we would be a people of misplaced priority to the degree that we would say, it's seeing the concrete result from the vision. It's not. It's seeing our hearts taken out and the flesh handed to God, gracefully extended to him and saying, make this beautiful. Submitting all that we are each and every day. And in the midst of this, asking him to do something amazing here. So Haggai goes in. <laughs> and imagine this. You've been working for three and a half months or so. And he's, he's critiquing your work and saying, in essence, everything you've done is just sullied and dirty. And you look at it and you're like, man, that, that, that sting is just kind of right in here, buddy. He's got you. He's broken your heart. He's got you. But then he comes in in verse 15. Look what he says. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? Now, if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 5, 6, 9, and 10, Haggai goes in and he details all the various ways, all the various ways that their lives were terrible. Their lives were awful. They kept expending tons of energy trying to grow stuff it wouldn't grow. They tried to make as much money as they could, and they found that their currency was worthless. Their clothes were thin. They couldn't even get enough alcohol to drink to, uh, to quiet their, their aching in their heart. That's what he tells them. Life is pretty miserable for them. And so he says, now then, consider from this day onward, how did you fare? And so he recaps it. He says, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. In essence, he says, look, you're out there and you're sowing all of this seed and you're out and you're busy, busy, busy. Then it comes to the harvest and you're only gathering in half as much as you should. So you're bummed about that. So you go over to the wine vat. And you've had, this, you've had this I Love Lucy moment where you had all the women out there barefoot stomping down grapes. And so you get down and you begin to draw out the wine. And what you realize there is that there's less than half. All of this effort, all of this energy, 
and you're getting less than a 50% return on wine, a 50% return on wheat. Then God tells them, I did this. I did this. He says, I did this. I struck you in all the product of your toil with blight, with mildew, with hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Sometimes in the frustrations of our lives, all we want is the frustration to go away. All we want is the pain to stop. All we want is the difficulty to relent. All we want is to make it to the next stage. And in terms of what God tells the the nation of Israel through the mouth of Haggai the prophet is, I did this. And I did it to bring you back to me. But you wouldn't do it. You just kept putting your nose to the grindstone. You kept just trying harder until they didn't. And what we recognize from chapter 1 and verse 15 is that they began to fear the Lord and they returned to him. This is why he calls them a second time to consider from this day onward. In essence, when they look at their lives and their former pursuits of themselves, their former pursuits of building up their houses, their former pursuits of making their lives better, everything else other than pursuing God. He says, in essence, keep this in your mind. Remember what was behind you, but look forward to what is ahead of you. So he gives them the date. He says, it's the 24th day of the ninth month. It is December the 18th of the year 520. He says, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider You'll remember that when Haggai goes to them on August the 29th and he says, man, what is going on? And his corrective to this was give your hearts to God and begin to build and work for God. Give your hearts to God and begin to build for God. So he says, from that moment, consider. And he asks them a curious question. He says, is the seed yet in the barn? This is the middle of winter. I gotta tell you, I'm not a terrific farmer. Every year we grow these raised flower beds and my goal and hope is to grow one tomato, one zucchini. And I've yet, as of yet, have failed to grow a sizable watermelon. I can grow one the size of my fist. It is delicious, but you have to eat it like this. (laughs) That was tasty. Softball-sized watermelons coming to a kitchen near you. So he asked them this question, which should have been obvious to them. He says, it's the middle of winter. Have you harvested anything yet? No, I ain't harvested none yet. It's always the guy that talks like that that does the harvesting. <laughs> With a Jewish accent. He says, is the seed yet in the barn? And they say, no, of course not. And he says, indeed, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they have yielded nothing. But from this moment on, I'll bless you. The blessing God promises to them has nothing to do with something tangible before them. The blessing that God promises them has nothing to do with something tangible before them. Their obedience to God prompts God to bless them. But what he tells them right here is, I'm guaranteeing you a blessing. I'm guaranteeing that these things are going to be yours, but they have no evidence 
that these things are really going to be true. Because they look out and they see the crops buried below the ground. They see the trees with no buds on them. Why? Because it is the middle of winter. Now, what we recognize is that where we see our blessings, where we see the things we pray for, and if we see God doesn't respond and doesn't bring these things our way immediately, what happens? We tend to discount God or to disregard God, and we expend our time, our energy, and our efforts trying to make these things real on our own. And what God testifies in this is he's going to accomplish something they cannot accomplish on their own. He is going to make the ground produce its fruit. Have you considered that perhaps the thing that you desire from God, he doesn't desire for you? Have you considered that the thing you desire from God, he doesn't desire for you? See, according to Christianity, the most significant blessing any of us can receive is forgiveness from God. It's forgiveness from God. It is union with Christ. And that is something that none of us can work to receive, but what it takes from us is a humble it takes us humbly testifying that we are broken and in need. So God here moves in and he tells them he's going to bless them and they have to trust that he will bring these things to be. So this is what he says to the mass populace. This is what he says to everybody. And then what he does is he turns to Zerubbabel. He turns to the guy whose job it is to be the liaison between the people of Judah and those back in Babylon. So he turns to this guy who is king And he begins to tell him of something that in his mind has to be complete fantasy in terms of seeing it actually become to be reality as something they could do on their own. They didn't have a great many number of people. They had 40,000 plus. They didn't have some great army. It's laughable to consider that they would. But look what he tells him. Haggai speaks the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And he says, speaking of God, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm about to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, to overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. Haggai steps in. He says, look, the temple's not up. There's no walls to protect you. But this is what God is going to do. There's going to be a tremendous display of his power. And your provision and your protection rest solely upon God and his blessing for you. So Zerubbabel. You've got to imagine the guy looks out. He looks at the temple. He looks at the walls. And God asks him to respond in faith. In essence, God looks at him and he says, do you believe on me and on my word that I can keep you and these people safe? And as, his, as their leader, Zerubbabel is faced with the reality that he and himself and his people cannot keep them safe. That their only provision can come from God and God has described an incredible provision. Kings and kingdoms brought low. Horses and their riders destroyed. These people secure. God's promise and providence at work in their lives describes a reality greater than anything they might be able to imagine. 
And he goes on. Look what he says in verse 23. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel. I will take you, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, the interesting thing is that right before the Israelites, the Judah goes up into exile, within the book of Jeremiah, we read that the, the king was spoken of as a signet ring, and God said, would that you were like a signet ring that I could remove from my hand. And then once again here, we see God appropriating the same language to this restored kingdom, and he goes into Zerubbabel, and he says, you are like a signet ring that I'm going to wear. He tells Zerubbabel, in essence, that you are going to be a sign and a seal of God's power and provision. That when people see you, when they see this nation, they will recognize God and his provision. Now, the fascinating thing about this is Zerubbabel lives out the course of his life, and he never sees these things come to fruition. He never sees these things come to fruition. He merely just kind of disappears from history. We know that the temple didn't last forever. They built the temple. It took them four years to build it, but in the year A.D. 70, it was destroyed and it was laid low. So then, what is to come of Zerubbabel, this man who Hebrews, 13, or Hebrews 11, 13 says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. See, the amazing thing in this is that even though Zerubbabel didn't see his kingdom rise and become good, great, and wonderful, he didn't see them become all-powerful. He didn't see kingdoms toppled. He didn't see chariots and their riders upended. When we come to the Gospel of Matthew, we see this man's name listed once more. In Matthew chapter 1, and starting in verse 12, it says, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the, the father of Sheltiel, and Zerubbabel, the father of of a bee. You see, God's ultimate plan and provision for them wasn't that their nation would be restored to being this great military, uh, great military force in the region. God's plan and purposes for them wasn't that the temple would be this thing that drew all the people in. God's plan and provision for them always rested in the person of Jesus. You see, as we sit here, you and I can variously articulate what blessing might look like for us in our lives. If I were to ask you and we were to submit uh, to you to write down three things that you would like from God, three ways that you might like God to bless you, maybe it would be health, maybe it would be a relationship, maybe it would be money. Biblically, when God speaks of ultimate blessing, ultimate blessing is only ever realized in the person of Jesus. Ultimate blessing is only ever realized in the person of Jesus. This is why. When we come to salvation in Christ, it cannot be this this passing excitement that we're so giddy about that we can't shut up, that everybody we talk to, we tell about Jesus, but five years later, we just look at it as this thing to set on the back burner. You see, what God calls us to and what he seeks to do in our hearts is to revive our hearts to the point 
for we see him as the ultimate blessing. And everything else is subordinated underneath that. So what does that mean for us corporately? This is what it means for us corporately. It means for us, if we build this, we get back in here under budget, on time, that's not the ultimate blessing. That's not something to rejoice about. We can be happy, we can be glad. That's not the ultimate blessing. Does it mean that if, if, if we go to Bowie and everybody gets over there and they're just like, this is awesome, and, 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 and they really pitch in and they get dirty and they work and, and they don't grumble and complain, we look at that and say, that's the ultimate blessing. Now, I've got to tell you, these are Baptists. That's a temptation, y'all. That's not the ultimate blessing. You say, Matt, are you meaning to tell me that if we go over there and nobody leaves, and in fact, if we continue to grow at the rate we're going and things are continuing to go well, are you meaning to tell me that that's not the ultimate blessing? Well, you haven't wasted 30 minutes of your morning today. That's correct. It's not the ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing is that which each and every one of us can receive and it is the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ. When God brought his people back into the land, he gave them something tangible to do so that they might learn something eternal about who he is, and that was building the temple. Any job, any task we put ourselves to, we can find it being mundane. We can find ourselves quickly bored and tired of it. But if instead we would give God our hearts, And we wouldn't pursue holiness out of an accidental purpose, but an active investment of our intensity and focus and energy into pursuing holiness. Find that nothing can be mundane. Because he has our hearts and he's directing our paths. And we recognize him as the ultimate blessing. And not some lower subordinated thing that we thought would be good, great, and wonderful. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask this morning that you would show us the times when we have set our hearts on something lower than yourself. God, that you would reveal to us when we are pursuing idols, be it family, health, money, whatever it is that we set our hearts on, it's not you. Help us to recognize and see that our ultimate blessing is always found in Jesus, is only found in Jesus. And the forgiveness of sins and the union with him by his blood poured out. Father, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. God, that you would work in their heart to convict them concerning sin and righteousness that even though they are far off from you and dead in their sins and trespasses, they can be forgiven and they can be united with you. They don't have to pay the penalty and the punishment for their sins. They don't have to work off anything because Christ has already accomplished forgiveness and perfection for them on the cross of Calvary. You bid them come. Come and be made whole. Come and be made clean. Come and rejoice forevermore. Father, we pray for those who have misguided priorities today. They've placed the pursuit of holiness on the back burner. Let's 
not let them wait for another crisis, but God, would you awaken our hearts to pursue you passionately today? Would you awaken our hearts to the reality of the role that you are playing and desire to play furthermore still in our lives? God, would you help us with one voice to sing your praise, with one voice to be joined together in the past passionate pursuit of you and of your heart. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.